how far is too far? How far is too far? This is uh, a philosophical favorite among people. We ask this question in our lives all the time, in or out of the church. I'm dating someone new. How far is too far? I'm going to have a few drinks. How far is too far? I want to make my point, even if it offends, but how far is too far? Man, I need these people to get this task done for me. I need to push them uh, to meet this debt, but how far is too far? I can make the drive, right? I'm not too tired. I can finish the leg, but how far is too far? I love this food so much. Just one more trip to the buffet, but how, how, how far is too far? This joke is kind of crude. Uh, this comment is kind of slimy. You know, this may be gossip, but I really need to say it. So how far is too far? You and I, we try to set our own limits in all those examples. We strive to set limits in our lives. And more times than not, we end up failing um, to not set those limits in the right place. You and me as creatures, as people, the human condition is, we want limitlessness. We want total control. We want all the options all the time in our lives and total control of it, all the ability to have all we want. We like to say we want our cake and we want to eat it as well, right? But I wonder how far is too far? The preacher of Ecclesiastes has told us he has gone too far. He has shown you and I that every pleasure he could have, he had it, and it was too far. Every philosophy that there is to live by, he has pursued it, and he has concluded that it has gone too far. Um, he has found uh, wisdom in limits, wisdom in limits. And in our text today, uh, they come in the traditional form of biblical wisdom, more so than they have in this entire book yet. Uh, this, is this is wisdom literature as the Bible does it in its clearest, okay? You see there pithy statements, uh, proverbial statements set to examine the limits that this preacher has learned in his life as he has tried to apply wisdom. He gives us, in verse 5, a bit of a spectrum of it. Wise rebukes and foolish songs. It's kind of a spectrum there. Wise rebukes being the best, foolish songs being the worst. He's trying to give us limits. That's the sermon title for you. Here's the sermon in one sentence this morning. What me and you, what we think we know to be wise has benefits with limits. And what God certainly knows to be wise has benefits without limits. Let me say that again. We and you, me and you, what we think we know to be wise has benefits with limits. But what God certainly knows to be wise has benefits without limits. The preacher teaches me and you this morning to understand these limits. And he does so by teaching it when we face death. So he wants to teach in death. He wants to teach wisdom itself, so in wisdom. And then finally, in conclusion, he's going to turn to, uh, to tell us to consider the limitlessness of God Almighty. The truly wise can receive instruction from the preacher. And our text shows us that in these three clear ways. So here's your three points this morning. Death's limits. Uh, this is how dying instructs the wise. That's verses one through six, if you look at the text. And then secondly, we'll talk about wisdom's limits. 
how knowledge instructs the wise in 7 through 12. And then finally, God's limitlessness, how sovereignty instructs the wise in verses 13 and 14. Don't worry, you'll get those again. Now, um, death's limits, how dying instructs the wise. You know, the preacher is talking there in verse 1, and he makes it clear that a good name is better than precious ointment. And you'll have to give me just a second because I believe my second page of notes didn't print for some reason, which is okay. But I'll tell you, reading verse 1 and remembering what I have written down for you today, it says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, right there in the beginning, a good name is more precious than ointment. That just sounds Southern, doesn't it? Right? Like when I remember when I read that, like the first thing I thought about was an Aaron Tippin song that my daddy always played growing up. Right? You got to stand for something, son, or you'll fall for anything. Right? You got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Right? Fight for what's right. Uphold your family name. Son, you have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. I know for me and many good old boys, the idea of a good name being precious as ointment really sums up for us a lot of what we were raised in. We were taught that. I know I was. And the idea that the preacher is trying to say here is, is, is the way you die, like your name at the end of your life versus the beginning, can be a precious ointment. There's wisdom in it. If you think with me about birth for a second, no one's name is awesome at birth. It can become something, but really just a few people in the room who named him, right, are really the only ones that treat it as special in that moment. But the way someone ends matters. That's a huge point this morning. So I'll just give you some examples. Adolf Hitler, Winston Churchill, right? Judas, Jesus. I mean, the name immediately can, can tell you how someone has finished. And the preacher here is saying a good name is better, and it's connected to uh, what's also better is the day of death. The day of death is better. Now, how is this true? Because on the surface, this comment, it seems backwards, right? It seems wrong. I mean, surely new life and birth is something better than someone dying, right? But the preacher disagrees because he has learned from death's preaching. He has learned that death is a preacher. You see, death shows up, and David Gibson is uh, an author who made the point that, that it, for the preacher, he's showing us that death shows up as a messenger. It, it, we all live in its shadow. We ignore it, but he, we should look it in the eye because it's always staring us in the eye. And the wise man can really learn from this idea of living in death's shadow. Death wants to teach us, can we learn the lesson? Um, death, as compared to birth, you know, other than a few comments and precious thoughts that your parents and those few people made in that room, if you notice how this ended here, uh, you know, the Lord, the Lord is saying here in, in verse 1 that the day of death is actually better than the day of birth. And he's, 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 again, saying how you finish matters. If you don't finish well, your death can show the world the worst things about your life. I think recently of the story of Ravi Zacharias, a, a beloved Christian apologist for decades who passed in the last years, and yet how his death has meant, for many, a lot of heartache because he has been outed after death as being one who conceived secret sexual sin, harmed many people, it was outed that, that he, has, he has 
just been uh, for years sinning greatly. And in his story, death showed what Luke 8, 17 says. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is saying, live your life all, all you want, but death is going to say something about who you are. All right? So let's gain wisdom from it. You know, shake your fist at death and judgment all you want, but it doesn't change the fact that they are honest. Now I'm remembering, that was my first sub point. So death is honest. Death makes us deal with the honesty, and that's what we're talking about here. But honest, honesty doesn't, you know, we don't come by it easily, but the hope of learning in death is, from death, is that we can be honest with ourselves. Again, how we finish matters. The idea of death showing up um, as the best of our life is, is really an honest and a powerful thing. You know, for years now, I've said to myself, I want to have a funeral that people take notes at. I want to have a funeral that people praise God at, people sing at, people weep and laugh at. Now, for me, this is because I remember early when I was growing in Christ as a disciple in college, I went to a funeral in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and I was struck by testimony after testimony after testimony as people took the stage to celebrate the grace of God in a servant of his who had died. This was a a dad of a friend of ours in our community. People were compelled when they got to the stage to give their best theological conclusions as they hovered over their dead friend. They were bound to preach the gospel, saying, this brother would have had you hear this good news. I remember leaving that funeral thinking, I want that. I want that. I want to die like that. I want somebody to stand above my coffin and say those things about God. You know, it's better to have a funeral like this. I hope you want that. You know, we all define a good death in many ways. The preacher here is committed to the truth that your death matters, both good and bad. So let that be a reality of the precious ointment that your life, a name, could be. Look at verse 2. Death's honesty comes to us again in verse 2, but this time with instruction. He said it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. So right here we have two pictures in our mind, a bit of a story in these Proverbs, right? You've got the house of mourning on one hand. How does the house of mourning tell us honestly about who we are? Well, it's referring to a funeral service. That's what that means there. And it's talking about remembering, lamenting, honoring, burying somebody who's died. That's the house of mourning. The preacher uh, says going to this place, the house of mourning, is better, better for a person. Now, why? Well, here's why. The moment of death, it brings the deeper realities of a person's life and impact from the background into the foreground. Lament and wailing can teach us because they move us. The wise man can learn from death. He can learn how to weep with those who weep. In other words, he's trying to make the point again here in verse 2. He'll make it again in verse 3 and 4. He's repeating himself for good reason. You know, this makes me think of an account in Scripture of Christ. There's a story where a, a friend of Jesus, Lazarus, has died But before he's died, he's sick, and Jesus and his disciples receive word that he's sick, and Jesus intentionally waits, waits until his friend Lazarus gets so sick that he does die. By the time Jesus shows up with the power to raise him back to life, he's been dead for four days. Jesus understood that the house of mourning was better than the house of weeping, or excuse me, of joy, of partying, because he 
uh, shows up and he teaches. So he teaches Mary and he teaches Martha and he teaches the people. He even weeps himself for the sorrow of death and the brokenness of the world around him in that moment. Is this a weakness to camp out in the house of mourning? Certainly not, right? I mean, this is better than than feasting with Lazarus, which he's done before, which he'll do after he raises him from the grave. But there was a lesson that Jesus shows us that is happening here. Now, you contrast this, the house of mourning, and the, the lessons learned, with the house of feasting, which literally the translation is a house of drinking, consuming drink, okay? In the Hebrew, it's literally the fun house, the party house. Now, we need to say that, of course, there is such a way to have feasting as a part of life, which is good. Right? The Bible does not contradict itself here. I mean, the context of Ecclesiastes is Israel, who God has ordered many times each year to have celebration, to, to pour out wine, to celebrate to God, to enjoy these festivals. But this fact, you know, that there are high times, the preacher is not saying that lessons gathered in the house of feasting are wrong or bad. He's just saying that they're a lesser good than the lessons one heart can learn in the hour of death or examining one's life in the shadow of mourning of death. He asks us to learn wisdom from how honest death is. Look what he says. This is the end of all mankind. I mean, that's his reason. And he says the living will lay this up in their heart. Everyone finds their end in a coffin, friend. Everyone. Here's the practical wisdom of death. All face it, and it waits for no person or circumstance. Feast times are not necessarily the same, though, are they? I mean, not everyone will experience the joy of their wedding. Not everyone will experience the birth of a child. Not everyone will have a certain festival where they commemorate some birthday. Not everyone makes it to 60. Not everybody has anniversaries. Not everyone celebrates in retirement. But everyone will die. So there is more wisdom then to be gleaned from this commonality. Don't ignore death. If you do, you're going to be shocked when it appears. He's not calling us to be paranoid. Like, have you ever seen the movie Benchwarmers? There's this silly character, Howie, and Howie is just so paranoid. He, he's scared of the sun, every disease. He's even worried about bleeding out from a paper cut. The preacher's not saying being, you know, weirdo Howie from the Benchwarmers. He's saying instead, let there be a gain for you in the certainty of death. You know, if you have it, if you can live with a balanced life about what death can teach you, you won't be so shocked when you get that phone call or when you receive that diagnosis or when you have that dark night. Those who gain this wisdom have laid it up in their heart. You know, Moses prayed in Psalm 90, 12, a prayer of Moses. He said, God, teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may have and get a heart of wisdom. Friend, let me ask you, is there a teacher out there who has the number of your days? Of course there is. It's the Lord God Almighty. He's soon to appear in our passage, but for now, think of the importance it is to wait on him, to learn to number your days in the light of living. David writes in Psalm 139, he says, you know, God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In other words, before I was even born, you saw me. He says, in your book, God, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. From the first to the last one, God has knowledge and has numbered every day 
that you and I will have. Now, in our feeble minds, we think this means so much, and we run to sometimes a worst end of determination. But listen to me. God knowing every one of your days is a good truth, and it is shrouded in the mystery of God's omnipotence. That is, God's power. It's something to be received, as David prayed it. He prayed that God would help him. Moses prayed, help me to number my days. Help me to find rest. And then you apply it. You know, to receive this is to seek to number your days, laying the wisdom up in your heart. You know, what the preacher's trying to say is that this lesson of wisdom, it's like rebar that can be laid into your life as a foundation. So when God pours the concrete, there is much to grab a hold of. You're not surprised when God has a sanctifying plan for you in heartache. Because you've laid in God's promises the rebar so that when his concrete is poured, it can grab a hole. It becomes stronger, right? And that's what the preacher's trying to say. We build on this hope, not in despair. That's the wisdom of trying to believe. That's the honesty death gives. Secondly, death can deepen your quality of life. So, so this is the second sub-point. Not only can uh, death make you honest about your own life, it can deepen. So look in three and four. Sorrow is better than laughter. So, uh, sadness of face, uh, you know, uh, makes the heart glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning again, the heart of fools in the house of mirth. Death's honest reality is repeated, okay? It's repeated again here. We have our houses again, don't we? We have the house of mourning and the house of mirth. That's just the same as feasting and partying and fun. Me and you must strive to love repeated truths. And listen, when you read the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and even the Psalms, there is repetition. It's not a bad thing. It's a gift. And God's people have known this. We grow weary of repeated things, but we shouldn't. Let me say it like this. The monotony of holiness is the most acceptable form of boredom in God's kingdom. I'm going to say it again. The monotony of holiness is the most acceptable form of boredom in God's kingdom. You and I should embrace it and continue in it. I mean, what's happening, but this preacher's saying the exact same thing. Ah, but look, he's added some things, hasn't he? He's added some emotions. Do you see him there? He's pulling on our heartstrings, isn't he? Right? I mean, he has the word sorrow. Sorrow is better than laughter. That word sorrow in light of death is very important, isn't it? Let me give you some other words that could translate just as easily from this word. Crying, grief, frustration, these are words that are trying to strike at the vexation and, and the, the offense that's in us. We have a guttural response of sadness that gets associated with death and terrible circumstances, don't we? You're not human if you don't feel this. So there's no mistaking the meaning here. You know, the guy who laughs at a funeral is a fool. I don't care what the bare naked ladies say, right? Like, that guy's a fool, and instead, like there's wisdom in the moment. But how can such vexation again, such sorrow, how can that be better than laughter? I love what the NET translation note says. It says here, sober reflection is a good thing for the heart. Sober, somber even, reflection, it's a good thing for the heart. And what it can do is death can actually deepen your understanding of life. In light of death, you can have more quality of life. That's the point here. Now, I watch, sadly, too many Disney movies as a dad of youngsters, and I try my hardest 
to not bring them into the pulpit. But I dare say, I think Disney has covered this well uh, that illustrates it really well. There's this beautiful movie they made called Inside Out. It's just a wonderful uh, story. It's a coming-of-age movie about a young character named Riley. Riley uh, lacks depth. As a child, she feels sadness or joy or disgust or anger. Okay, they're never together. They're just always there and not together. And the whole movie, she's struggling. But one of them is coming to the forefront. It's death. It's the house of mourning. It's sadness. It's a trial. She has to move to San Francisco. She hates San Francisco, and she's struggling. And the whole movie is just really trying to strike at those nerves. Well, at one point, sadness so overtakes her. Death, the house of mourning, is so strong. She can't acknowledge its limits. She runs away from home. And there's Riley on the bus until finally she stops trying to stop sadness and she is just sad. And she realizes that she can go to her house. So she gets off the bus, she goes home, and there is this wonderful scene that tries to illustrate what I think the preacher is saying here. She comes in only feeling sad, incapable of understanding anything else, and her family is there. And her mom and dad embrace her. And though sadness is still there, there is now something new, joy. And this, this idea is formed where sadness and joy are in the same moment for her. And you just, you see that she rests. She's able to rest. She, did, she feels sad, but she also feels joy. She knows the love of her family is true. She also knows that this hurts a lot, right? And what's Disney getting at? Well, they're just stealing the Bible's message. There's a message to be learned in death. You know, a short stay in the house of mourning left Riley with both joy and sadness, and it became a good thing in her heart. Sober reflection is a good thing for the heart. And that's what the preacher is saying here. Can you learn this lesson on your own? No. No, you cannot. Such gladness of heart in the face of such peril is something that we believe as Christians only comes from the mysterious movements of God. You know, last week we sang a song called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It answers the question, can you do this on your own, when it says that God is a God who plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storms of your life. Just when you would blame and curse him, you must realize God's presence actively in the sorrow, in the sadness, in the difficulty is what can make your heart truly glad. He's not causally connected to this, your evil, the fallen world, and circumstances outside of our control or our own sin will land us in places of seas and storms and difficulties. But we serve a God who behind a frowning face, he hides what? A smile. Behind a frowning providence, he has a smile. There are clouds that are thick and gray over our lives, but God is ready to burst them with mercy, right? In rain. That's the idea. Verse five continues to offer the better way. It says it's better for a man to hear the heart of the rebuke of the wise than the heart of the song, oh, excuse me, and hear the song of fools. Another statement here um, about the ability to endure something difficult. So now death has become like a rebuke, kind of like the way you live. And, you know, to ignore it may be fun for a while, but it's foolish in the end. And he finishes our first point here with the crackling of thorns under a pot. Uh, he says, like crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. So he's adding even more depth that, God, that, that death can teach us. His illustration is this, okay? It's the idea of cooking. So if you imagine cooking over an open fire with a pot, and you go out in the woods and you grab small twigs and sticks like thorns and you light them up, they're going to blaze. 
There's going to be a loud crackling, some intense, you know, short heat. But they're not going to cook your raw stew meat. Your, your, your meat ain't going to be cooked. That's kind of like the laughter of fools. That's what it's like to live your life trying to be you know, high on fun all the time, trying to ignore death. Instead, you need what? You need heavy logs that sometimes burn slower, but eventually burn hotter. They make hot coals and a bed of them. And when you put you know, your life on them, what happens? It cooks, right? The, the meat can actually cook in the stew. You know, such counsel from fools to go play, to, to think, you know, about what you can get in life. It, it's just that. It's foolish. Instead, you know, we need the sovereign care of God. The crackling of thorns is loud, right? It threatens your ability to hear the rebuke of wisdom, but we must forsake it. You need to examine your every day, number your days, pursue wisdom, and so that's what death teaches us. Death instructs the wise. Secondly, he looks at wisdom's limits. And he says, hey, knowledge can instruct the wise too. Verses 7 through 12. Now, the preacher gives four examples in verses 7 through 10 that explore his findings on the benefits of wisdom. He does so by showing four escapes that foolish people try to take to avoid their problems rather than wisdom. Here they are. He says there's want of money. He says in verse 7, he says that uh, there's impatience in verse 8. Some people pursue anger in verse 9 or nostalgia in verse 10. I want to look at those quickly. You remember, we're trying to find wisdom. And, and the idea here is, is that there is wisdom to live in this life. And so he's going to give that in these four verses. And then in verses 11 through 12, this point finishes by showing the limits of wisdom. But let's talk about these four ways that you and I try to escape. Escapism is this tendency you and me have that instead of dealing with our problems, we seek distraction. We seek relief. We try to avoid our problems rather than pursue wisdom. And the first way he shows this is in verse 7. Want of money. Each of these will have a point uh, that, that I think can help. Our want of money is an escape that allows us to ignore our responsibilities. Let me explain. He says, surely oppression drives, out, uh, drives the wise into madness. A bribe corrupts the heart. Without wisdom, it is easy to fall into the trap of money. You know, extortion is in view here. You know, extortion is being described in this text as somebody who wants money so much that oppression and bribing will, will, will end up overturning wisdom in their life. If they succumb to the love of money, it's, it's, it's a sharp warning to follow death, right? Uh, one commentator quibbed after, after verse 6, you get to verse 7, and maybe you should say, hey, extra money? You got some extra money? You, you made a little bit of money in life? What are you going to do with it? Well, you could always, you know, line the walls of your coffin with it. You know, to love and to want money and ignore wisdom is going to lead you to be a cheat. You'll cheat others. You'll cheat yourself to get ahead. And the preacher is showing here that wisdom wants to speak to this. Wisdom can overturn our love for money. But we have a real temptation when we try to live in this life to escape the wise road and to grab shortcuts. It's just easier to be dishonest. But the preacher says wisdom will keep us away from madness. It'll keep us away from this real temptation to cheat others. Again, our want of money is an escape that allows us to ignore our responsibilities. 
Second way me and you escape, impatience. Look at verse 8. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Wisdom, again, addressing impatience. You know, someone who struggles with impatience is a person who seeks to escape reality. And in their impatience, they imagine their life to be different than it actually is. But wisdom applied against this escape allows for enjoyment in the end. Wisdom can make you draw a comparison clearly to a patient person and the way their life ends being better and an impatient person who's proud in their spirit. They get robbed of the better ending. Just think of the famous Aesop's fable. It's similar to this, right? The hare is going to win the race, right, over the tortoise. They both start the race. The hare runs in his proudness of spirit. He sprints ahead. But we know what happens. He gets distracted. He loses sight of the goal. He stops to take a nap. What happens, though? He loses. Because the tortoise does what? He's patient, right? The idea here is, hey, there is wisdom in this life to understand. Put aside your impatience. Why are you always in such a hurry? It's okay when the drive-thru took longer than it needed to. It's all right that you made it late to that appointment. The world still spins. God's still good. But man, the person who struggles with impatience, they can't see that. Our impatience becomes an escape. It allows us to ignore our reality. Thirdly, anger. Our anger is an escape that allows us to ignore our inability to reason. Our anger allows us to ignore our inability to reason. The preacher says, it's, uh, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. You know, me and you, we get angry, don't we, when we can't reason, when things don't happen like we want them to. Anger appears in us when what we wanted to happen doesn't happen, when we're inconvenienced. When we don't have our expectations met, we get frustrated. Of course, this can happen in any number of areas in our life, right? A spousal disagreement, traffic, children that interrupt our plans, work goals not met or work goals not going like we expected. And rather than learn from wisdom to take a deep breath, slow your roll, remember who's in control, don't jump to conclusions, you and me, we escape, don't we? We escape into our favorite emotional cottage of the soul, anger. That's kind of the silly analogy he gives here. I want you to imagine that a storm is raging on a home, okay? I mean, wind, rain, lightning, and there's a bunch of people in the house. And there they are, believing together that the house has a roof and walls that's protecting them. But someone begins to stand up in the house, and he says, we're not safe enough. And so he starts to begin and construct a little house inside the house. Everyone's like, what are you doing? We don't need that. No, this is what we need. And he builds it just for himself to fit in. And he gets it finished, goes inside the house, shuts the door, and now he's convinced that he's safe from the storm. That's what anger's like in your life. That's how foolish it can make you look. It lodges in the heart of the fool. He's more convinced in the moment that what he knows is right is right, and that's it. While everybody else is living and trying to live around him. That's how anger provides wisdom to you in times of struggle. It will get you away from your problems, sure. But at what cost? If you know anything, brother, sister, you know your anger has made it to where you got a fix for your problem but it just made a whole bunch of more problems in your life. The cost of true wisdom 
here could actually help. We must avoid anger as an escape. It only allows us to ignore our inability to reason. And here's the last one, number four, nostalgia. It's kind of my favorite. The preacher is clear, right? Verse 10, say not, why, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. Here's what nostalgia is, if you don't know. It's a sentimental longing. It's wistful thinking and affections for the past, for things behind you. It's typically about a period or a place where you were happy. There's so many examples that abound, right? We were skinny and beautiful then as compared to how fat and ugly we are and feel now. Uh, we were so in love then as compared to our fighting now. And I was king of the football field back then. Boy, let me tell you. Right? I was captain of the cheer squad. You know, back then the music in the band, it was just sweeter and louder and awesome. Man, what an awesome time. Those songs sounded better. Food always tastes better as we think about it in the past. You and me, we long for the house that raised us in memory. Right? At least the good of it. And we, we, we sometimes, though, wrongly, the preacher says, we do that as a way of escape. And the preacher says, be careful. Do not miss the fact that, that you, in thinking the days in the past were better, are really robbing yourself of what God wants to do in the day now. You know, as people, we are nostalgic about so much. But I don't see this in any more of a damaging place than one's spiritual life. When somebody begins to talk about former days when they love God in a counseling session or um, in a time, you know, I always want to celebrate the good work that God has done. But I always want to be leery because wisdom would say you would point back to something that was awesome and you would speak condemnation over your life now, right? Whereas God would say if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation now for those who are in him, those who are in him presently. God wants to do a whole lot of work right here. Wisdom speaks against such affections for your past and it can allow you to sober up. C.S. Lewis understood this in The Way to Glory, a paper he wrote. He talks about these high feelings you and I have about nostalgic things in our past. And he points out how there's a trap that's back there. I want to read it to you. Quote, he says, these things, nostalgic things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country that we have never yet visited. Look, nostalgia can be a liar to you, and you remember things one way, and then sometimes when you go back to them, you only find them to be worse, right? Here's why. The idea back then was that you were experiencing, as Lewis said, the echo of a good thing to come. Uh, in other words, it was supposed to point you forward. It was supposed to point you to the insatiable desire that you have to long for eternity. You hear a good song that you remember, and you should remember, you should be reminded, there's a song you'll sing forever that you'll never forget, and it will never stop being wonderful. Like radio play may wear out the song, you know, now in your life, but in heaven you will sing it and never grow weary of it. And that's what Lewis and the preacher is trying to hold you to. And in Ecclesiastes 3, he's already said this, hasn't he? Do you remember in verse 11? God is the one who has put eternity into man's heart. There is wisdom 
and not looking back at nostalgia as a form of escape. Here's why. Nostalgia is an escape that allows us to ignore our current lack of relief. So truism teaches us to avoid these four forms of escapism. We should be thankful for it. There's a lot of wisdom in not loving money and not being impatient, not being angry, and not living in the past. But you know what wisdom does show us, the preacher says in verse 11 through 12? He shows us it has limits. Read it with me again. Wisdom's good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So hear me. We need wisdom to avoid these errors we talked about in the first in those four verses. Okay, to live in light of death, we need wisdom. But even wisdom has its limits, and the wise man will learn them. These verses show wisdom in a positive light, but it is only when it is paired with promise that it becomes more. Did you see that? Okay, look at the parallels again. The parallel to each of those is stated. It says, it's good, it's an advantage, it's protecting, it's preserving life. But how's wisdom doing all those things? Well, it's good with an inheritance, with a promise behind it, right? It's an advantage, but it's only to those who see the sun. Interesting word. It's protection, like protection of money. It's likened to. And now it's an advantage, right? How? It preserves your life. These parallels show us that wisdom is pointing outside of itself, Okay, stay with me here. It's pointing outside of itself to what can make someone truly wise. Wisdom is limited in regards to being able to bring us the thing we most desire, true satisfaction in this life and hope for eternity. My favorite of these that we'll finish with this before our last point um, is, is the corresponding promise idea that wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun. You know, it's those of us who are able to walk in the light of day, who are able to walk under the sun in such a way that we see beyond what it, what it illuminates. You know, people that are truly wise don't worship what is, you know, lit and before them. They worship that which gives the light. And that's what the preacher is saying here. Lewis, again, is so helpful. He, he brings an analogy to us that fits right here. Lewis says, I believe in God or I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. What's Lewis getting at? He's saying, I believe in Christ and, the, and God and true wisdom like the sun. It, when I get my eyes up off of what it shows me, I see it. And then when I see it rightly, God, I see everything else like I'm supposed to. Well, there it is. But the question is, do you see such value in such words? Do you see, as the preacher is pointing now to the limits of, of what you need, you know, such understanding of how to explain uh, this rock that you and I call home, man, the advantage to gain from wisdom is great, but, you know, there's this greater lesson to learn from its limits. If we do that, it's going to direct our paths under the sun, and it's going to teach us that we can actually walk above the sun if we would believe. You know, you need to grasp the heights and the depths of creation, sure, but can you control what's beyond them? 
I mean, that has been the message of this book over and over again. Okay, if you can truly set aside this whole world and under the sun and try to look above, can, can you control anything in your life truly? No, you cannot. And that's wisdom's limits. It teaches the wise as an invitation, which is where we finish our text. God's limitlessness. God's limitlessness and how sovereignty instructs the wise. Remember, guys, death's limits instruct the wise. Wisdom's limits instruct the wise. But God's wisdom saves the wise. The preacher paints this truth in broad strokes of God's sovereignty. Now, before we preach these two verses in conclusion, let me stop here and tell a story. And I want to tell it to anybody here now who may be lost and does not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a testimony of what you're invited to believe today. It's called The Crook in the Lot, and it's, about, it's uh, written by Thomas Boston. It's his last sermon. But I want to tell you the story of Thomas Boston this morning. Philip, Philip Ryken in Reformation 21 has a really good article on this, but I'll summarize. Okay, he tells the story, a true story, of the Scottish theologian, preacher, and pastor Thomas Boston. Now, Thomas Boston was a melancholy man, a sad man. He was prone to seasons of discouragement in the Christian life. Thomas Boston was often poor in health, and yet he never missed a chance to turn out and preach in the pulpit. Thomas Boston's wife suffered from chronic illness of the body, perhaps also of the mind, as we read and read his letters and think about him. But perhaps the couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. They lost six of their ten babies. One loss was so especially tragic, Boston had already lost a son of theirs named Ebenezer, which in the Bible, Ebenezer means, hitherto had the Lord helped us. So from 1 Samuel 7, 12, you know, the Lord helps us, Ebenezer. Well, when his wife gave birth to another son, he, he considered naming the new child Ebenezer as well. Yet the minister hesitated. Naming the boy Ebenezer would be a testimony of hope and the faithfulness of God. But what if this child died too and the family had to bury another Ebenezer? That would be a loss too bitter to hear and to bear. But by faith, Boston decided to name his son Ebenezer. Yet the child was sickly and despite urgent prayer of his parents and the church, he never recovered. The grieving father wrote this in his memoirs, quote, It pleased the Lord that he also was removed from me. After such suffering, such a heavy loss, I think many people would be tempted to drop out of ministry, to argue with God, maybe even abandon their faith. Thomas Boston did none of these. He continued believing in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Rather than turning away from the Lord in times of trial, he turned toward the Lord for help and comfort. Boston's uh, perseverance through suffering is worthy, not only of our admiration, but also of our imitation. One way to learn from his example is to read his classic sermon on the sovereignty of God, which is one of the last things that he prepared for publication before he died. Boston called his sermon the crook in the lot. And it was based on the command and the question that me and you read in our text and conclusion today in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, I'm telling you this story as an invitation this morning before we have a couple of concluding thoughts and sing. Okay, if you do not believe the gospel today, can I ask you to do honestly 
what this text commands? Will you consider the work of God? God's work can sustain a man through the perils that you hear in Boston's story. And it can rescue you from any peril you find yourself in presently. The work of God is always a work of faith. And true works of faith secure our faith to the hope of Christ and the gospel. You know, in our sin, we are all crooked. We're all the crook in the lot. We've all failed in sin. We've all fallen short of God's glory. God alone can make us straight by the work of his one and only son, Christ. Jesus was straight wisdom from heaven. Okay, skip the limits of death. Skip the limits of wisdom itself. See wisdom manifold walking the earth. This was the virgin born son of Mary and Joseph, God's only son. Straight wisdom from heaven. And Jesus affirmed the limits of death's wisdom because he met death itself. Not only did he resurrect Lazarus like we talked about earlier and a little girl, but Jesus himself faced death, a horrible death. When he died, wisdom crucified on the cross for our sins and for his people. And death seemed to win. And yet death's limits were truly exposed. For death could not hold him in the grave. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Death is swallowed up by him. For God breathed into him his spirit again and brought back from the grave Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the grave, defeating death. He demonstrated the wisdom of God in action. And his resurrection secures our eyes on himself. Jesus says, look to the Son. Ecclesiastes said, look to the sun as you walk under this earth. If you dare get your eyes above it, can you see anything? Jesus said, here's what was above it. Come down to you. Look unto me and believe. And in his resurrection, he said, see the sun, the son of man, now risen, raised to newness of life. His followers were commanded, watch me as I rise above the very sun you'll do, do these days out underneath. As I sit enthroned of the father, the earth my footstool, and as I send my spirit and power to equip you to go and to preach and to proclaim the good news and to live lives of wisdom, right? Little evidences and examples of my wisdom all over the earth pointing people to look up, look to Jesus, look above the sun. He sits in heaven a throne. If you're not a believer today, will you repent of your sin and will you believe? Will you trust Christ as Lord and Savior? I hope so, because look what verse 14 in our conclusion says. The preacher says that if we get the question, considering the works of God, one who can take something crooked and do something straight, one who works beyond our knowledge, here's what we get. In the day of prosperity, we will have joy. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And look at this wonderful truth, church. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Listen, friend, listen, believer. When we do gain Jesus, we gain eternal life, we gain hope in our hearts. We gain the understanding of God's limitlessness. We're ready to take on death and all of its limits. We're ready to apply wisdom and all of its limits on this earth under the sun because God in his goodness has included us in his limitlessness. The infinite wisdom of God in all things becomes a comfort to us in everything. 
I mean, think of the beauty of this. No matter the death of another Ebenezer, God's people will not forsake him, for he will hold us fast. His glory in all things in your mind is wisdom. In 1 Corinthians, it says you have the mind of Christ. In Corinthians, it tells us that you can oppose what? Every lofty opinion and knowledge held up against the knowledge of God. How? You take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. How can you do this without Christ? You can't. We have him. And so now the promise of God in verse 14 is, is that no matter what comes next, I'm telling you, I want to stand at funerals with you and I want to believe this. I want to hope that 20 years from now, no matter what comes, right? Body, flesh may fail, right? They may kill. Fear not the ones that would hurt your body. Fear the one who could destroy it in hell. And guess what? He has declared over you, I have given you my wisdom, You will not be destroyed in hell. I will see you to the end. This places in the heart of the Christian a right understanding. I may not know in the day of difficulty, in the day of adversity, I may not know what comes after. That's what it's saying. But it doesn't matter, right? I may not know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And so I won't worry. I won't fear. Preacher's able to answer in, uh, you know, in God that the day of prosperity is a true joy, which is awesome. He loves that. We're going to get to do that some more in, in chapter 9. Like, look, love, you should enjoy cool weather when it breaks into East Texas. You just should. And as a Christian, that's a joy, man. You should get together and have fun. You should drink and eat and do it all to the glory of God. But listen, friend, like there is a lot of death and a lot of difficulty. You'd be fooling yourself to only think it's good. But don't you know in Christ that the adversities and the struggles, they're in his hands. And those hands have been pierced for you. You have enough in Jesus. Death cannot hold, hurt, or hinder you and I. We will persevere to the end. We will see Jesus face to face. Here's what we're about to sing, and then we'll respond. When on the day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinner slain is making all things new. Behold, Our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall forever his people be. All glory be to Christ. Will you pray with me as we have our brother come and we'll sing in response to God. Let's pray.